We have been looking at the story of uh, Moses for some weeks, and uh, the last three weeks in particular we've been following through week by week, and we've arrived at the story of the plagues, uh, but we're not going to read five chapters of plagues, uh, or are we going to go kind of one by one through the gnats and the frogs and the rest of it. Uh, So I'm just going to read from Psalm 105 and then some verses from Psalm 106 because the story of the Exodus and this whole event was such a massive part of Jewish history that you'll find it's referred to many, many times through the Old Testament. It's a, a real life changing event for them as a nation and so you'll find it referred to here and there so I'm just going to read a couple of passages where there's reference to it rather than read through um, some of the plague stories in any detail and we're going to take a kind of overview in this section so Psalm 105 from verse 23 Psalm 105 from verse 23 Israel also came into Egypt. Thus Jacob sojourned in the land of Ham, and he caused his people to be very fruitful and made them stronger than their adversaries. He turned their heart to hate his people, to deal craftily with his servants. He sent Moses, his servant, and Aaron, whom he'd chosen. They performed his wondrous acts among them, miracles in the land of Ham. He sent darkness, made it dark. They didn't rebel against his words. He turned their waters into blood, caused their fish to die. Their lands swarmed with frogs, even the chambers of their kings. He spoke, and there came a swarm of flies and gnats in all their territory. He gave them hail for rain and flaming fire in their land. He struck down their vines and their fig trees and shattered the trees of their territory. He spoke and locusts came. And young locusts, even without number, ate up all the vegetation in their land, ate up the fruit of their ground. He also struck down all the firstborn in their land, the first fruits of their vigor. He brought them out with silver and gold. And among his tribes there was not one who stumbled. Egypt was glad when they departed, for the dread of them had fallen on them. Then Psalm 106, we'll just take a few verses there, from verse 7. Psalm 106, verse 7. Our fathers in Egypt didn't understand your wonders. They didn't remember your abundant kindnesses, but rebelled by the sea at the Red Sea. Nevertheless, he saved them for the sake of his name, that he might make his power known. Thus he rebuked the Red Sea, and it dried up. He led them through the deeps as through the wilderness. He saved them from the hand of the one who hated them, and redeemed them from the hand of the enemy. The waters covered their adversaries. Not one of them was left. Then they believed his words and they sang his praise. Father, thank you so much for your presence with us. We thank you, Lord, we can sing from our hearts. It's you we adore. We thank you that we have good reason to express love, worship, 
thanksgiving and appreciation. Thank you for your kindness to us through another week, Lord, your faithfulness, your provision. We're so grateful, Father. And Father, we ask you in the name of Jesus for the help of the Holy Spirit as we look at this scripture together that we might learn from you, that we might know the Holy Spirit's help. Lord, bless us with your truth, we pray, Father. In Jesus' name, amen. Amen. So why are we looking at the story of Moses? Uh, is it that, well, you're, you know, you're in church, so we look at Bible stories. No, we're looking at the story of Moses really because we want to find God, the story of God behind these characters. God has revealed himself not in a systematic theology uh, so that you open your Bible and it says God is omnipresent. God is omniscient. God is, no, it's not like that. It's a, it's a book of stories. It's a book of history. It's a genuine history. And God has been pleased to reveal himself through people who he raises up and who make him famous. And so we, yes, we're reading about Moses. You could read about David. You could read about Joshua. You could read about Mary. You could read about these people who God engages with someone. He wins their heart. He wins their obedience, he wins their faith, and then they kind of engage with him, and his majesty and his power breaks out on the planet through people. And do you know that's still possible for us today, that in our little world, we can relate to this God, we can get to know him, he can win our hearts, he can win our trust, our confidence, and we can do things energized by him, empowered by him, with his fingerprints on our lives. So we look at these characters, yes, to get to know about God and to get to know about how you can relate to God. That's our goal, that's our purpose, because it's such a huge thing to know God. I don't think I remember such a time when our newspapers and televisions and radios were so full of just huge and terrible news. And... Uh, it's like day after day we hear, it's like we look at this subject and think, gosh, that's terrible. Now let's look at this part of the world. Wow, that's outrageous. Now let's look into our own nation and think, what is happening? Is, is there a God you can know? Is there an answer you can find? And, and what's he like? What is this God like? Is he just uh, uh, like Star Wars, let the force be with you? You know, is he kind of an ancient old man up there in a rocking chair? Is he like a supercomputer, registering everything? Can you know him? Can you have a relationship with him? Can you know him as a father? What was this God like? And the whole point of our looking at the scripture is to answer some of these questions, to find out what God is like. And really that comes up in the story when God arrests Moses originally and begins to speak to him. And this Moses, who, who shall I say? You are. What's your name? And when it talks about the name, we're talking about the identity. And we'll keep referring to that uh, through this morning. It's the name of God, is the identity of God. It's his making himself known. And Moses says, who, who are you? And then when Moses approached Pharaoh, and we haven't time to recap all that we've seen so far, Pharaoh says, who is the Lord that I should obey him? Who is he? That's the big question. And that's the question we're still asking, or our, con our contemporaries are asking, well, who's God? Can you know God? And actually, this story is one of those stories where we have one of the biggest revelations of God in the whole Bible. God painted on a massive, massive canvas. 
a revelation of God. That's what's going to happen through these phenomenal plagues, some ten scary plagues that Moses is God's spokesman. He comes to Pharaoh, who's probably the most powerful man on planet Earth at the time. We might say at the moment, you know, the president of the USA might be the most powerful man. Well, of this generation, the most powerful man on the planet would have been this great Pharaoh. And he was worshipped. He was called a god. And so when Moses approached him and says, thus says the Lord, Pharaoh, from his position of total arrogance, says, who is the Lord? I'm king around here. I'm God around here. And he completely dismisses. Who is he? And what's going to happen now is God's going to demonstrate. It's one thing saying my name is this enigmatic name. I am who I am. I think, what is that? Then he begins to demonstrate who he is. And here we see something of just massive proportion. Sometimes we hear news on our radio or television when it speaks about this problem is of biblical proportions. You hear that from time to time. Three million in Syria are without homes. Three million homeless. And they say things like this. It's of biblical proportions. What do they mean? Well, they mean things like this. Two million Israelites, refugees, slaves, abused, terribly abused. Now genocide will kill all your children, throw them in the Nile. I mean, it's the sort of thing we're reading about in our newspapers, the sort of thing that's in our faces now. So God's going to manifest himself in the midst of this. He's going to show himself. He's going to display who he is on a massive canvas. So first of all, let's just see this. It's a demonstration of God's compassion. All right, that's my first heading, if you like. It's a demonstration of God's compassion. The story starts, as we saw a few weeks back, where God comes to Moses and says, I have seen the plight of my people. I have heard their cry, and I have come down to deliver them. And I send you. So, the whole story starts with a, a revelation of the compassion of God. God is not indifferent. God is not saying, well, this is tragic, this is sad. God's not washing his hands of them. God is moved. God springs into action. And the whole call of Moses, God is kind of secretly moving in Moses' life, preparing him, getting him ready in a unique kind of way. And then God's own desire to move meets with a man, engages with the man, and brings the man into play. It's the same with David. When David becomes king, and then later in David's life, when he's built the empire, established the kingdom, he says he suddenly realized God had raised him up for the sake of the nation. It's not just so that he can have a story. It's not just for his reputation. Oh, David, what an amazing man. No, God's purpose was wrapped up in the man. God wraps up his purposes in individuals. So he's getting caught up in God's compassion, God's tender mercies. Now, if you read theological books, you can see sometimes this phrase, the impassibility of God. The impassibility. What does that mean? Well, some have tried to suggest that God doesn't have any feelings because that would mean he changes and God doesn't change. The Lord, I am the Lord, I don't change, the Bible says. Therefore, you sons of Jacob are not consumed. So God is unchanging. He's a rock. And so they say he doesn't have feelings. Well, to be honest, that's a very kind of faulty 
way of seeing God because God again and again speaks of his feelings. The, the, the prophets in the Old Testament speak of the feelings of God. Uh, men like Jeremiah say, I can feel it in my own. He feels it in his heart. He's caught up with God so much that he can feel what God's feeling. Hosea, similarly, he's caught up with God. God has feelings that are demonstrated and displayed. And of course, in the Lord Jesus, whom the Bible teaches is the radiance of the Father, he's the exact image of God, he can say to his disciples, he that has seen me has seen the Father. I am the exact demonstration of the Father. And again and again we see Jesus moved with compassion. We see lepers coming along, people running back. No, Jesus moves in. Jesus moved with compassion, goes in and touches the dread disease. We hear about dread disease in West Africa at the moment. People running away, people fleeing, people don't go near it. It's that kind of scary thing in Bible days. Leprosy, keep clear. Jesus walks straight in. Moved with compassion, he walks straight in. He touches, he makes whole. Moved with compassion. Again and again, he demonstrates tremendous compassion. In fact, his whole life is motivated by compassion. He, although he's a great teacher and age 12, we read that he's in the temple and can discuss things with the teachers when he grows into his ministry, he doesn't hang around with the influential people. He's a kind of friend of sinners. He mixes with the needy, with beggars who cry out to him. And the disciples say, go away, keep, no, no, bring him to me. Jesus associates with frail people. He gives himself to people who need help. And so mercy is shaping his life. He's not repelled by poverty. He's attracted by it. Sometimes if we see poverty, we might see poverty as we're changing from one tube to another tube, going through the subway. We can sometimes be repelled by poverty that's there. Jesus was kind of attracted. And, and he's attracted to some of our poverty that's not necessarily financial, but our awareness of not being all we'd like to be. You know, some of the things we'd, we'd rather hide, if you'd like to, to know about us. You know, you get this television program. I've not actually watched one yet, but they, they, they go back into people's history, find who, who, you, who you really are. And some of us might be thinking, oh, I don't want them to know that. I don't want that bit of history brought out. I, don't, I, I would rather people thought this of me. I'd rather, I'd rather think they went, that I went here, I belong there. You know, I, went, I was in that university or from that background. And, and we're, we're trying to hide things, but... It says in the Bible, Jesus, knowing of people's need, he's moved, he's touched by the feelings of our infirmity. Things that we'd rather hide, he's attracted by. Things that we would feel were repellent, he's drawn to. And so Jesus moves out to the needy. Jesus is moved with compassion. He constantly goes to people. And so he's the, he's the clearest demonstration of the Father. And so this whole story begins because God is compassionate. It's a demonstration of the compassion of God. That's what the whole story kicks off. That's the trigger that starts it. The compassion of God. Now we need to see this too. Is it because they're the innocents? We sometimes hear that language today. Innocent people hurt. What they mean is really, they're not caught up in this conflict. They didn't start the battle, so, so they're called innocent. The innocent people, Jesus knew better than that. 
Jesus didn't say, well, these poor slaves, they're innocent. There's nothing wrong with them. Look at these wicked, wicked Egyptians and these innocent Hebrews. No, it's not like that. He, he knew better than that. We find as the story goes on, they're anything but innocent. They start complaining. They start rebelling. They start disobeying. I mean, very quickly. They've, they've hardly escaped and they're complaining. And, and they're not pretty, actually. And this is even more a demonstration of the compassion of God his compassion comes from a deeper well than these innocents should be set free. We might be motivated by that. We might feel, hey, this isn't fair. These innocents should be released. This terrible thing happening to children in our country that we've heard about in the news in this last week. These innocents. Well, Jesus is more aware of the human condition. He knows that we're not actually innocent people. We may be innocent in a certain context, but we're not fundamentally innocent. Because the scripture says that we're all, the heart is deceitful among all things, and desperately wicked. There's none righteous. And so God's compassion is not because, oh, there's some innocent people, I need to rescue them, it's not fair. No, no, God's compassion is even greater. It is, they're guilty and I still love them. They're failures, but I still want to help them. They're sinners, but I'm still moved with compassion. God so loved the world in the condition it's in. The compassion of God is greater than any kind of compassion we could understand. But he is moved in spite of our condition. And when that gets spelt out in the New Testament, more specifically, it says, while we were without strength, while we were yet enemies, while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. It's a compassion that goes beyond, let's rescue the innocents. It's let's rescue the guilty. God's compassion is breathtaking. And so this story is going to show something of the compassion of God. God's ability to rescue people and bring them out, save them, to use a Bible word, to save them out of their condition, out of their plight, and into his purpose. So, first of all, it's a, it's a, a story, the plagues, the exodus, it's a demonstration of the compassion of God. Secondly, it's a demonstration of the judgments of God. That God will act. And if we had time to read through these chapters, which you can do at your leisure, you can see how one plague after another humbles the nation of Egypt and its great king. How we find the Nile, which they kind of worshipped as their resource, the great river Nile, which uh, when it flooded each year caused the possibility of fruitfulness. They were an abundantly fruitful nation because of the Nile. The Nile met their needs and there was worship of the Nile and God turns it into blood. Under Moses comes this word, now you just put your staff over and the whole river turns to blood. And then you find the stories of these various things that take place and it's God's fury being demonstrated. God demonstrates his judgment. That God acts in judgment. In fact, you can only understand salvation against the backdrop of judgment. If we had no awareness of judgment, why would we need to be saved? But the, the, the story of the plagues and Exodus is saying God is a judge. 
God will judge. He will save, he will judge. Both of these things are on display in this story. He is the judge of all the earth. That's what the Bible says. That's what he calls himself, the judge of all the earth, the judge of every living person. Every one of us will give account to God. He will judge us. And scriptures say things like this, you are weighed in the balance, and tragically it says of that one, and found wanting. God will judge. He is the judge. And here's a demonstration on a massive canvas. He's the judge. He's going to judge this powerful nation, arrogant nation, this nation that didn't mind if it just killed all the babies. It didn't mind just pushing these people down lower and lower. No, he's going to judge them. He's not going to just let it happen. He is the judge of all the earth. See, people don't like to think of God as judge. People will often say, well, when I think of God, I don't, I don't, I don't think of God as a judge. I don't, I don't think of him like that. It's interesting, Satan was the first person to suggest that in creation. He said to Eve, you won't die. First lie ever told on the planet. God said, if you do that, you'll die. He said, no, surely you won't die. The first lie suggested is God doesn't judge. We will still find people today who say, no, God's not really a judge. No, he is a judge. He makes himself known. Packer, that famous Christian writer, says, people have got into the way of following private religious hunches rather than learning about God from his word. God is a judge. God will judge. Not just nations, but every individual. Every one of us will give account to God. That's what the Bible says. And we will have his full attention when we give our account. He won't be glancing somewhere else. He says we will all appear. It doesn't mean, oh, was he in church this morning? I think he put an appearance. No, it means we will be manifest. Who I am, who you are, in that day will become visible, clear, manifest, nothing hidden. Every one of us will give account. That's what the Bible says. And he will judge That's what the Bible is teaching us, and here we're seeing it on this great big canvas. And God's moral perfection is his perfection in judgment. See, if he wasn't holy, if he he doesn't judge, well, moral indifference would be an imperfection in God. If he said, well, I'll let you off. I'll let, no, no, that. God is holy. God is just. We need to see the Bible, God, come and stand here. And all our ideas of what God might be like to fade away. Because it's knowing the God who really is. The I am that I am. That's our savior. That's what we need. I desperately need. Not, not the God we make up. Not the God we imagine. Not the God I'd like him to be. Later on we'll find... Moses is told by the people, or at least Aaron is told by the people, make a God for us. Moses is in the mountain meeting with God. And the people rebel and they say to Aaron, make us a God, make us a God. And he says, well, give us your rings, give us your earrings, give us your... All they put their gold in and he starts fashioning a God. And it's like you say to him, how would you like it? He's like, how would you like this, like this? How would you like horns? What sort of God, what would you like? Because you make him. And people are like that. They say, make their God. They, they suggest what he might be like. 
well, I, I would always think God should be like this. And I think God. And that, so we make our own God. And do you know, there's no fear of God. No fear of the God we make. There's no reverence for a God that we make. Once out of our own imagination, he's very comfortable. He's very easy. And the, what this story is saying is that God wants to make himself known for who he really is. It's a massive display of who he really is. And judgment is part of who he is. And they display amazing fury and anger. God demonstrates anger against Pharaoh, yes. Against the gods that they worship. There are some ten different plagues. And nearly every plague is putting down a god. So that the Nile was one of the gods they worshipped. They worshipped the sun. Ra, the sun. And so he blots out the sun for three days. It's like one after another. He puts down, puts down, puts down. He's demonstrating he alone is God. And he's angry with those other things that want to claim people. And there are modern gods. We're not worshipping the sun or the Nile these days. But there are all kinds of things that people think I couldn't live without. I can't imagine life without. If only I had. One of the New Testament gods is named Mammon. Mammon's promising you security, safety, maybe a good reputation, maybe some power. And the Bible says you can't serve God and Mammon. He's offering all, all the things that God offers, security and safety. And He's a false god and God wants to declare war. God declares war on these false gods. And here we find his anger and fury is also on display. So first of all, it's a demonstration of his compassion. Secondly, it's a demonstration of his judging authority. The true God will judge. He wants the world to know. Thirdly, it's an amazing display of God's ordained way of salvation. God's way of demonstrating mercy. We haven't had time to get into it. In fact, we'll come back to it again next time I'm with you. But the Passover is God's incredible mercy to Israel. What happens is he teaches them that they have to be judged like the Egyptians do. They are also guilty. If you read the stories, you find they were also idolatrous while they were in Egypt. They weren't an amazingly pure, holy people. But they were people God was determined to save. Their plans and purposes for their lives. And he told them the way that they were to go. And the ordained way is that every home should take a lamb. Every household should take a lamb. And it had to be a, first, had to be a clean lamb. had to be unblemished. No disease, no broken limb had to be an, a, a perfect lamb. And every household had to kill the lamb, take the blood, and put it on the doorposts. And God said, when I see the blood of the lamb, I will pass over. So that the angel of death, God's judgment, swept right through Egypt to destroy the firstborn of every family. That was God's way of judging the nation. That was what he was doing. And then he said this, but every household must take a lamb and kill the lamb. And your confidence must be that I will pass over when I see blood. It's not that, well, 
We're innocent, really. Look, we've been enslaved. It's not fair. That's our argument before God. It's not fair. I've had a tough time. Life was difficult for me. I, that's my argument with God. That's my appeal. I'm as good as the next guy. If I'd only had a better chance, I've been in slavery. It's been hard. None of that counts for anything. The only thing that counts is having blood of the Lamb on the door. There's no other appeal. It's not, well, I'm innocent of this. It's not fair. That won't work. Well, I'm a Jew. That won't work. You've got to have blood on the door. That's God preparing Israel for a way of salvation that's going to become clearer and clearer as this nation's history unfolds and as it's preparing us for the New Testament. This is the first time that blood being shed is making its appeal. As you move on in the Bible, you find books like Leviticus and stories of how you have to do these various sacrifices. First of all, in the tabernacle, then in the temple, our blood must be shed, repeatedly reminding there has to be a death. God said, the soul that sins will die. There has to be a death. And Israel was taught there can be a substitute. There can be a lamb. You must present the lamb as a substitute. That's the way you'll find mercy. There's no appeal. It's not, well, I don't deserve. We came into Egypt. We followed Joseph. Joseph was a great man. He he solved Egypt's problem. He saved Egypt for the way he handled things. And and we were honored and respected. And gradually they've become wicked. And look what's happened to us. It doesn't work. The only appeal is the blood of the lamb. But the blood of the lamb is enough. And God says, when I see the blood of the Lamb, I'll pass over you. That's most wonderful news. That's Christian news. That's good news. That's the way Jesus was introduced. When Jesus first appeared on the scene, John the Baptist introduced him. And it's in every one of the four Gospels, and it's again even repeated in the beginning of Acts. Every Gospel says, John the Baptist said, look, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. That lamb, that shed blood, that one. So this old, this first story, this Passover story, is beginning to present this way of salvation to the human race. It's a magnificent display of how God will show mercy. The blood of an innocent lamb must take the place, and you must hide yourself in His perfect offering. You must hide yourself behind that blood. Jesus said. I didn't come to be served, but to serve and to lay down my life a ransom. I came to redeem. I came to pay the price like this lamb was going to redeem them out from Egypt. Isaiah 53, later on, this great prophet is raised up and he talks about, we all went astray and the Lord laid on him the iniquity of us all. And like a lamb, he went to be slaughtered. Jesus, the Lamb of God. In John's Gospel, it becomes very clear that on the exact night where in the Jewish program, the Passovers were going to be slain because they're going to be taught to do this repeatedly. Every year, they have to slay their Passover lamb. On that very night, Jesus, our Passover, was crucified. That very day, that very moment in the calendar, the Jewish calendar of Jesus, the perfect Passover. And then, of course, in Corinthians, 1 Corinthians 5 Paul says, Christ, our Passover, has been sacrificed. 
the way of salvation. Trust in an innocent lamb who died in our place. The great Passover that brought these people through into acceptance with God. It's all preparing the way for our knowing God. Our way. God then is God is moved with compassion, not only for innocence, but for people who need mercy. He's compassionate. He's also full of fury and judgment. These two things hold together. God righteous, God furious, God merciful, God angry. These two, where does that meet? It meets in a lamb who will take the place of sinners who make their appeal. It's the only way that we are accepted. Then the next thing we see as we go through the story, this big overview, is that it was the forming of a new nation. As they come out of this, as they hide under the blood, as they hide under the obedience of that lamb dying in their place, they are told in Exodus 12, 12, this shall be a beginning of months for you. This is the beginning. They went into Egypt as a family, quite a large family, dozen brothers, their wives and children, some 70 people go down into Egypt, but now they're becoming a great nation. This is the beginning of their becoming a great nation. They're brought forth with a new beginning. They're starting. It's new creation. You'll find later, and we won't get into it now, but there's, you'll find the prophets talk about them being, it's like a new creation. They're brought out of the water. It's interesting, the book of Genesis, the very creation speaks of there was water and then God says, separate this and bring the land out of the water. It's like new creation. God's starting all over again. He's starting, not, he started with the whole creation, now he's starting again with a new people and it comes I'm out of the water. You'll find in the prophets they talk about that. He brought us out through the Red Sea. It's like God creating again, God starting again. And that's what is true for a Christian. If anyone is in Christ, new creation. Why do we get baptized? We're plunged into that death. We come back out of the water. We come out. New, new creation people join to another group of new creation people. We're put into a new... God's forming a new people on the planet. And that all speaks to us of what's happening for the church of the living God. Raised up with Christ. Raised into newness of life. God starting again with a new people. A forming of a new nation. That's what God is doing here, the forming of a new nation. And then last of all, so we've seen his compassion, we've seen his judgment, we've seen his way of escape in the Passover. Next we see his forming of a new people. And then finally, the revelation of the majesty of God. Actually, this, this comes out again and again in this story. Why, why the plagues? Why this incredible, massive display of power? Why did God, we're told, harden Pharaoh's heart? Why is it all set up like this? Why? See, if, if Pharaoh had said straight away, okay, you know, we want to go, okay, go. No, no, he says no. And then you get this plague, No. Then another plague. No. Then another plague. Then, okay, you can. And then he changes his mind again. And, 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 and you get this, this, this conflict. 
and, and it's getting bigger and bigger and bigger. And the, and, the, and, the, and the pressure is growing. And the size of the conflict is growing. So that instead of, instead of slaves, you know, we found, we found a way out. I saw five minutes of the Colditz story on television the other day. Oh, we've got a tunnel. Let's get out. No, it's not a secret, hidden away thing. It's a huge display of power. And that's actually what it's all about. The Exodus is all about a display of the majesty of God. That's why it's allowed to keep growing and growing and growing and growing for the sake of his name. What does that mean? It means for the authentic display of what God is really like. The God we need to know. Not the God of our imagination. Oh, I don't think of God like that. The Bible is saying, I don't want you to say, well, I think of God like a river. You know, this river keeps on flooding over. It feeds us. It nourishes our fields. I think of God like a flowing river. I, I think of God like uh, that sun. I mean, look, and, and they've got all wrong concepts of God. So in our generation, we can say, well, I think of God like this. I never think of him as a judge. I think of him like a loving father. I, like, I think of him like we're all children of God. Everybody's a child of God. And, and it goes with this God or that God. It all reaches to And so people come up with all kinds of crazy ideas of what they prefer. And here... The name of the authentic God is on display. And God is jealous for his name. That's what comes through. And when I get in, I said at the beginning, a name represents a character, a personality, an identity. The name is not just a label. It's saying it's his name that's going to be seen. He wants to be known for who he really is. And so we just read together at the beginning in Psalm 106. He saved them for the sake of his name. That he might make his power known. He saved them. He put on the whole thing for the sake of his name. That the human race might know what this God is really like. It's a display and demonstration of God for the sake of his name. Christopher Wright who's a wonderful theologian and writer, says this, the motivation from God's point of view was not only the liberation of his enslaved people, but the driving divine will to be, tr to be known to all the nations for who and what he truly is. The mission of God to be known is what drives the whole narrative. The mission of God to be known. We might know God. We might know who he is. Know what he's like. And so you find God speaks to Pharaoh through Moses saying this, I have appointed you, Pharaoh, to show you my power so that, you might, so that my name may be declared throughout all the earth. A clear revelation of God and who he really is. Is. John Piper says, so the point of the Exodus was to make a world reputation, worldwide reputation for God. The point of the Exodus was to make a worldwide reputation for God. God delights in being known for who he truly is. He wants us not to have our own concepts, but to demonstrate and show himself 
That's his purpose. That's his plan. It's interesting to notice, as a result, one of the first outcomes we read about from this is when they arrive at the promised land and they encounter Rahab. And remember the spies go in ahead. I haven't time to give us the background to that. But the spies go in ahead to look at the land. And they, they encounter Rahab. And she says, I know that the Lord has given you this land. The terror of you has fallen on us. We have melted away before you. For we've heard how the Lord dried up the water of the Red Sea when you came out from Egypt. Verse 11. We heard our hearts melted. No courage remained in any man any longer because of you. For the Lord, your God, I am your God, he is the God of heaven above and on earth beneath. So here, this this woman, this pagan woman, gets an awareness who the God, he's the God who did that, he's the God who opened up the Red Sea, he's the God who swallowed up the Egyptian army. I mean, what a God you have! As a result of which, she honours him as the true God and actually gets included in the people. So Rahab's story is that she comes to believe, oh, this is the true God, I repent, I put my confidence in him. He is the authentic God. He's the God who can do these things. We submit ourselves to his awesome authority. And then you'll find as you see the story, of, of the, even the, 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 the story of Jesus' family, you find Rahab is in that family. She's embraced right into the family tree of Jesus. Someone, a pagan, included in. And so that Jesus, making, God making himself known through the Exodus, displaying who he really is so people can really know him and really find mercy and really find forgiveness and really come into relationship with the authentic God rather than be as she was with all kinds of strange false gods. So God demonstrating his power to know who he is. Even at the beginning of our meeting, we were told about Jesus praying, save me from this hour. And he said, no, for this purpose came I to this hour. Then what does he say? Glorify your name. That's the big issue for Jesus. As Jesus comes to the cross, he's going to be the lamb who's going to be offered up. And of course, he's not just a lamb. He's a living person who can reflect upon and consider what it's going to cost him. And he trembles before the cross. What shall I say? Save me from this hour? No, for this purpose came I to this hour. Glorify your name. Let your name be known. What did Jesus say? They said, teach us to pray. He said, pray like this. Father in heaven, hallowed be your name. Let your name be glorified. That's Jesus, that's our first prayer. Let the authentic God be known and loved. Let the real God, the Bible God, for all his purity, all his compassion, all his holy judgments, the reality of the God we must all ultimately face one day and every other God, like the plagues, disappears. Just smashed beyond existence. And we all meet the real God. God wants us to know in advance what he's really like. He's full of mercy. He's full of holiness. He is the perfect judge. 
He won't fool around. He won't say, oh, it's you. Okay, come in, come in. No, no. He will judge all things perfectly because he's perfect. But he's offering a way. He's offering a lamb. He's saying, hide under the blood. Hide there. I'm showing you a way of mercy. I'm showing you a way of forgiveness. Now it's on offer. So Jesus, the lamb, who's going to be slain on that Passover night, he says, Lord, glorify your name. Let the authentic God be seen and known. That's his prayer. And knowing him, he said in John 17, as he's praying, this is eternal life. To do what? To know you. And then he says in that same prayer, Lord, I've, I've, re- I've revealed your name to those you gave to me. He gathered 12 disciples. He spent three years with them. And he says this, I've revealed your name to them. I've told them what you're like. I've shown them what you're like. Knowing the authentic God, this is eternal life, to know him. Not our thoughts of what he might be like and shouldn't he do this and why doesn't he do that. And I always thought it's irrelevant. We need to know the God who wants to be known. The Exodus is saying God wants to be known. He wants his name to be famous. He wants us to make him known. And Paul says this, having been a Pharisee and a religious leader, he finds Jesus, he becomes a Christian. This is this, that I might know him. I'm willing to lose everything. I count it rubbish that I might know him. I want to get to know the authentic God. I count everything else loss that I might know him. I might get closer to him. So we find in Ephesians, Paul says, I'm praying for you Christians. I'm praying for a spirit of revelation in the knowledge of God. Beloved, it's a massive privilege to know God. It's a terrible tragedy to live with gods of our own imagination. Can you know God? Is there a God? What's happening in the world? We're never short life. This isn't rehearsal. This is it. We don't get a second go. This is it. And in this short life, we have a chance to get to know God. And we have a chance to take advantage of his amazing way of escape. Of a lamb who died. Understanding a substitute died in our place. But God says, when I see the blood... I'll pass over you. When I see someone else died for you, you'll be forgiven. This is the first place where it comes clear. The Bible will speak of it again and again and again. So as we draw to a close this morning, that's what we're looking at. We're looking at this phenomenal God. A God of compassion. That's where the story starts. I've seen their plight. I've come down to deliver. God is a God of immense compassion. But he's also a God who judges. He will judge sin. Don't you think God's furious with what's happening in our nation at the moment? That men would take little girls and get them drunk and get them drugged and then rape them again and again and lend them out to older men. Don't you think God is furious God will judge sin he will judge all sin he will deal with it ruthlessly he's furious at sin he will deal with it 
But out of his mighty love, he sent forth his son. And his son took the fury of the Holy God. The Bible says at the end, the people will shout out, let the rocks hide me from his fury. Let the mountains hide me. Because the fury of God's going to come. And Jesus took that. For all those who hide themselves in him, those who put the blood on their doorposts, and we're, we're hidden inside the blood. It's a demonstration of all these things. A demonstration of God calling a people. I want you to be my people. We looked at that a bit last week. A new identity people. And then his name being famous. To make himself known for who he truly is. We have the privilege of knowing him more and more and more. Getting to know the Lord. Let's stand to pray, please. Lord Jesus, thank you so much for being our Passover. We thank you that you died in our place. We thank you that though you shuddered under the shadow of the cross, though you trembled, though that moment in human history when the Son of God trembled, shall I pray, let this cup pass from me. No, for this purpose came I to this hour. Glorify your name. Oh Lord, we know that Jesus wants you to be glorified, your name to be known, the authentic God to be on display. We thank you at the cross. We have such a meeting of compassion and fury. We thank you, Jesus, for your willingness to be our Passover, to take our place. And Father, I want to ask you right now that just opening up this truth will do us good. That this wonderful gospel will come home to our hearts. I pray for any this morning who have not yet made sure. I pray for any who are feeling, no, well, I've had a tough time anyway. It wasn't fair. I was innocent. Somebody else enslaved me. I, I'm going to plead my own case. Lord, I pray, let them run to you for mercy. Let them hide themselves under your blood, under your cross, under your death. Thank you so much for your love, Lord. Thank you for your presence. We just want to worship you now, Lord. We want to bring our love to you, bring our praise to you, bring our appreciation to you. Be glorified, Lord. Be exalted on high. Amen. Amen.